It's good to see everybody. Did you guys catch that, that Facebook and Twitter sort of blew up last night on the West Coast? Facebook and Twitter, all kinds of things. Don, can you put that picture up for me? Anyone see this? We are being invaded. Some of you saw the UFO last night, but wasn't it interesting watching the, the, the tweets? I, I first saw it. I have a um, friend, I don't know if you guys remember Dan and Jocelyn Wilmot. Um, they used to go here a long time ago. Now they're in San Diego. Jocelyn posted this. I thought, okay, something weird's going on in San Diego. And then I'm part of a group up near Bishop and Mammoth, God's country up there. And um, all of a sudden, everyone up there is posting pictures of this thing. And then San Luis Obispo and, and Amanda posted a picture. I'm like, what is going on? And it was interesting watching the descriptions. There was all kinds of theories about what this is. Some of you already know, but um, some said it's a rocket. Some said a missile. Some were very convinced it was a UFO and we were being invaded. The internet has some crazy people on it. Just saying. Some thought it was a Russian attack. Um, One guy thought it was a government conspiracy to test its weapons on its citizens. (laughs) I'm just not even going to go there. Uh, when we got out from under our bunker, we, we discovered that it was a um, Star Destroyer coming to take out the, the, the world, because Star Wars is real. I don't know if you know that. This proves it. No, it, you know, but depending on what you thought it was, depending on what you called it, depended on your reaction, right? If you honestly thought it was an attack, would you act differently than if you thought it was some government test? You, you would react completely differently. One, you'd be under your table or in your bunker or, or praying that you survive. Another would be like, oh, it's a nice light show. For those of you that don't know what it is, it, it was from our Navy. It was a Trident II missile test um, shot off from the Pacific Ocean from one of our submarines, the USS Kentucky, which I would have loved to see that shoot off. They said this, which I, I appreciate. The tests were part of a scheduled ongoing system evaluation test. Launches are conducted on a frequent, recurring basis to ensure the continued reliability of the system. Each test activity provides valuable information about our systems, thus contributing to, our, to assurance in our capabilities. And then the last sentence I really appreciated, the missile was not armed. <laughs> but what we called this, a missile, a UFO, a plane, some, some weather anomaly, made a difference of how we reacted to it. And and I bring that up again just sort of as a general introduction to as we talk about the names of God, these names mean something. They aren't just, oh, the Bible ran wanted to be creative and the writers wanted to call Jesus different names and they ran out of wanting to use Jesus, so they added some new names. Each of these names actually means something and tells us something about his character, who he is, and more specifically, how he relates with his creation. And so as we come today to more names of Jesus, and I know we've been just fire hosing this and just taking it all in, and I'm hoping that out of all this comes an incredible awe for God, an awe for who He is and what He's done and how He has come to rescue us. Today we come to four more names of Jesus, and specifically the, the church names of Jesus is what I'm calling them. Names that the church can call Jesus, and, and they all describe his, rea- his interaction, his relationship with us as his church. And so when we call him these names, it implies, though, that we will act a certain way. This morning isn't just about, oh great, I can walk out with four more names to impress people on Facebook. I may not impress people on Facebook. 
I'm hoping we go out with saying, these are four more names that talk about how I need to react to God, how I respond to God, how I'm in relationship with God. That's the bottom line as we look at these names. And so we want to look at names that Jesus has given um, for the church to call him for his relationship with the church. The first is the head of the body. The head of the body. And we saw in 1 Corinthians, right, we've already seen that the church was called the body of Christ. When we talked about gifting and and that Jonathan over here is a a hand or a bass player or, you know, different things. And and we see different things like Amanda, maybe a a mouth for speaking and teaching and teaching the kids. And so we're, we're all different parts of the body. And we saw the interrelationship between the body, the interdependence between the parts of the body. Paul now expands that to a name of Christ, the head of the body. Each of our bodies needs a head, right? Not to get too graphic, but if we don't have our heads, we're pretty much non-existent. We're we're dead. There's nothing going on. And so the Bible extends that, that metaphor to a name of Christ that he is the head of the body. Turn with me to Colossians 1.18. And for each of these names, we'll turn to one verse, and then and the, there's several other verses in your notes that you can look up during the week, and I'll read those. Colossians 1.18. If you don't have a Bible this morning, right under the seat in front of you should be a black hardcover Bible that you're welcome to use. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take that with you as our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word and be in God's Word. Colossians 1.18. A verse that comes after Paul talks about the greatness of Jesus and that he's the creator of all things. And then we come to Colossians 1.18 and it says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so we see in this verse and several others that we'll look at, Jesus is called the head of the body. And we talked in 1 Corinthians about what does head mean. And the word head was used in, in a variety of different ways, just like we in English use head in a variety of different ways, right? It can mean my head. That's sort of the obvious one, the place where my brain is and my face happens to be attached to. That is my head, and so that's a physical sense. In Greek, the same thing. Kephale could mean head in, in, in the actual physical head. But just like in English, it also was sometimes used figuratively or symbolically of leadership or authority. The head of your company is usually the boss, right? He's the one in authority over that. He's the head of your company. Headship is is leadership. It's priority and function. It's priority and responsibility. Leadership is, is not just getting to tell people what to do. It's taking the responsibility for how the organization goes, for what happens. And just like our physical heads, our brain directs our body. Without our brain, you know, we joked about if you lost your head, you'd be dead. That's because all of your body functions would cease because your brain is, the, is what's controlling those things. In the same way, leadership and the preeminence of leadership means that Jesus as the head of the church is what directs, is who directs all functions of the church. All, all directions of the church is directed by Jesus. And so headship is a priority in function and leadership. It, is, it represents that Jesus is above us. And I know we know these things, but we want to unpack this and say, okay, what does that mean to the what is What does it mean to the church that Jesus is our head? See, it's not my church. It's not the elders' church. It's not even your church. This is Jesus' church. 
And so that should change how we think about church. That should change how we approach coming together. That should change how we approach whether or not everything is exactly as I want it to be. Even as the pastor, not everything goes by my preferences. In fact, a lot of things don't. But it's Jesus' church, and we're, we're part of a, a larger body. And so when we read, and He is the head of the body, the church, that is a, a very rich and packed word. And I just want to unpack a couple things from that. The first is it represents Jesus' supremacy over the church. And all things, actually. Jesus' supremacy over the church and all things. Paul is making a case to the church at Colossae that Jesus is the owner of all things. He's created all things for him. And and so he has supremacy. He has preeminence over all things. You see a couple phrases in there. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. And that word for beginning means he is first. He is the source of the church, but he's also first and the ruler over the church. It goes on to say how he can make that claim. The firstborn from the dead. He rose again. He died for our sins. And on the third day, he rose again. And that showed the victory and the power and his authority that he is God. And with that act, we can look forward to resurrection. We can look forward to eternity with him. But he created the church. And so he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning or before all things. He's the firstborn from the dead. And that that last phrase is key, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent means to be first, to be placed in highest honor. And Jesus' desire is that in the church, as well as everything else, he is to be first and have the highest place. That means as we come together as a church, we aren't coming together for our own desires. We aren't coming together so, so I can be, be blessed in the way I want to be blessed. I am coming here to make Christ number one. To honor Him. To glorify Him. To bring Him worship and praise and glory. There's nothing else that matters but making Him preeminent. And that changes how we come to church. This is hard for us, isn't it? By, by our nature, I would argue all of us are self-centered creatures. And, and when we get to some of the others, we're going to see that that's what the Bible teaches. We struggle with not making things about ourselves. In conversations, when you're talking to someone, we all know people that every conversation turns to them, right? Every story you have, they have a better story. They have a deeper story. That, that's, that's something we all struggle with. It's all about us. You know, in, in driving There's not too many times that I see a car slow down to get into the space behind me. You know I'm right. Usually they're speeding up and clipping my corner as they go in front of me. And and I hope I'm not doing the same thing. But we, we, our natural man is wired to be first. And so to say that Jesus is to be first, that Jesus is the head, he is to be preeminent in all things, even something as personal and relational as church and worship and how we do things, that is huge. Because you are coming here to give glory to God. I don't know why you came this morning. But that's why you should be coming. We are coming to enter the throne room, enter his presence, to be his church because he is the head. Oh, this is beautiful. In 3 John 9, Paul's addressing 
the church, and he talks about a man who struggles with that. And he says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. And we see even throughout Scripture examples of men and women who struggled with seeing God as first and and the preeminence of Christ. Everything he is to be preeminent. In our church, in our teaching, Christ should be the center of our teaching and His Word. In our worship, we should be elevating Christ. In, in who we come on Sundays to socialize with, we should be thinking, how does this bring glory to God? How does this reflect Christ? In our ministries, in what we choose to do, how does this contribute to Christ's mission? Do you see how Christ is the center of all that? That's what it means to make Him preeminent. But I would even extend that. If we come on Sunday morning and we're like, okay, Sunday morning, church name of of Christ is the head. He is going to be center of our worship Sunday morning. But then that's that's okay because I get the other six and a half days. That's just insulting to him, isn't it? That's not making him center. So if Christ is the center of us as his church, as his body, then he will be the center of our lives. Some of you know my, my circle talk, and that's really what this is about. That, that Christ is our priority. He is what we focus on. When we read Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. And in, in 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says that in, in all that you do, whether you eat or drink, give glory to God. Everything we do, we should be able to think, how does this make Jesus central? Do you see how head is, is more than just, oh, he's my head and I take direction every now and then. It's making him central to every part of my life. In my marriage, he is to be central. In my parenting, he is to be central. In my job and how I do my work, he is to be central. In my friendships, he is to be central. In my time, in my finances, in what I choose to do with my entertainment. Jesus is central. He is all to us. That's what it means when we say he is head. When Paul says that in everything he might be preeminent or first and have all honor and glory. It means when we leave today, when we go to work tomorrow, how are we going to make him preeminent? We do that with our thoughts, we do that with our actions. We do that by being bold for Christ. We're talking about the persecuted church. We prayed for the persecuted church. Pastor Saeed has seen the cost of making Christ preeminent. But it's worth it. So Christ as head means he's supreme over all things. It represents his supremacy of over all things. Second part of that is it represents his authority and sovereignty over his church. And that's a similar concept to to supremacy. But this, I'm going a little bit different direction. This has more to do with leadership and direction. He sets the agenda. He sets it with his word, right? If he says this is what the church should be about, then this is what the church should be about. It's about making disciples. And sometimes it's we we enjoy getting together. And I've seen churches that have gone from making disciples to making a, a wonderful social club. The problem is that's missing connection with the head. It's not Jesus' heart. His heart is that we make disciples, bring people to Christ, train them to walk with God. 
He sets the, the agenda. This comes back to what I said about the brain controlling the body functions. He controls the decision-making. And so we as a church, as we approach anything, there should be prayer, there should be understanding God's purposes in His Word and saying, how are we following the direction of Jesus in this? So not only how do we make Him first, but how do I follow His purposes? In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, we see this aspect brought out a little bit more. It says, and He, meaning... He, meaning God the Father, put all things under His feet, meaning Jesus, and gave Him as head over all things in the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And you see the concept of, of head and feet, of authority and rule there. He's quoting actually Psalm 8.6, and you see it brought out in that psalm. You have given Him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet. And so we need to acknowledge that this is God's church. It's Jesus' church. And He leads us. The third aspect of head that I wanted to bring out this morning is the head and the body powerfully represent our dependence on Jesus. The head and the body powerfully represent our dependence on Jesus. The verse right before Colossians 1.18 that, that we talked about, or 2.18, um, 2.17, talks about that Jesus holds all things together. And when we think of the head, we think of that as, as the source of a couple things in, in the body, but in the body of Christ, it's the source of our, our power and our strength as we're going to look at. It's, it's, the head is required for life. And, and I know we joked about that, like I said, if you lose your head, but that is a wonderful picture of if we are connected to the head, if we are, are determined to make Jesus the source of what we do in our strength and our power, then there's life. See, Jesus as the head is the source of our growth, the source of our life. In Colossians 2.19, we read, And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And Paul here is talking about a false teacher, and he's saying where he went wrong is he stopped holding fast to the head. And we may think literally, oh yeah, you got to hold your head on. And sometimes I've, I've said that to my kids probably. Would you just keep your head on? But what, I'm, what am I saying? Keep, keep your brain engaged. Keep attached to that. And so Paul here is saying where he went wrong is he didn't hold fast to the head. He didn't see Jesus as the source of all the strength that he needed. The source of truth. The source of growth. And so in Colossians 2.19, Paul expands on that. Not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, that's us as church, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. We grow the closer we are attached to God, to Jesus. The more that we are in tune with the fact that I am dependent on Jesus because He is my head, the more we acknowledge that as a church and stop trying to do things our own way and under our own power and under our own strength, the more Jesus will bring growth. And he's not talking numerical growth here. He's talking a spiritual depth, a spiritual growth within the community of Christ. And so we have to ask questions like, how connected am I to the head? How connected is your physical body to your head? Blood's flowing right now, right? 
So if you're asleep, maybe a little slower than some of the others. But, but blood's, blood's going right now. And that's bringing nourishment. The nerves are going right now, right? So if I say, I'm, I'm going to take Monday off from being connected to my head. No, how, how often is blood flowing? Constantly, all the time. And so if this is the image, if this is the name of Jesus for he and his church and us within his church, how connected do I need to be to Jesus? All the time. You cannot come on Sundays and get your spiritual fill for the week. You'll die spiritually. This is not enough. You need to be in God's Word. I need to be in God's Word. But more than just being in God's Word, you knew I was going to go there today. More than being in that is this understanding that there is a constant dependence on God. That every situation I come into, I should be praying and say, Jesus, I need you in this situation. I need to be connected to the head. Help me with this situation. Whether it's an interview, or whether it's a situation with the kids, or whether it's an argument with our spouse, Jesus, help me in this situation. Help me get past my self-centeredness. Make you preeminent and act Like, that is actually true. See, we're connected to the head, and we know that, but practically, how do we live? If you can live your week this week without ever acknowledging that Jesus is the head of your life and your need for Him, then there's a problem in your life. And that should should scare us a little bit. Because I'm pretty self-reliant. And I can go a week and think I've got it all put together. And this flies in the face of that and says, no, you need Jesus more than ever. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And so so Paul is here saying the same thing. We're to grow up into him with that relationship, that dependence. But then it goes on to say the same thing that we saw in Colossians, a companion verse, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so the picture he's given is the head and the connection to Jesus. Then as we all are connected to Jesus, we come together and this is beautiful because this is from God. And we can be different people and we can be different backgrounds. We can have different experiences in the week. But we come together and as we work together for the head, God does an incredible thing here. And so these represent a dependence on Jesus. Head isn't just about authority and following. That's certainly part of it. But it's about dependence for our very spiritual life. A couple of implications and applications These really flow very naturally out of it. One is that we need to honor and obey Jesus as the head. Recognize his authority. Ephesians 5, 23 and 24, while it doesn't specifically um, say some of these words, it really gives the illustration from marriage, a husband and a wife, to Christ and his church. It says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And I know we use that in weddings and we use that in marriage counseling and premarital counseling, but don't forget it's about the church too. And that Jesus is our head and we're to submit to him, which means willingly 
and joyfully coming under his authority. Second implication there, make sure you're connected daily to the source of life. We just talked about that. Make sure you're connected daily to the source of life. I encourage you to write in your notes to write down one thing this week that you can do to be better connected to the head. To make sure there's, there's blood vessels that actually are working there and nerves that are connected. What's one thing you could do to be better connected to the head this week? He will joyously honor that. So he's the head of the body. That's his first church name we'll talk about today. The second one is one we've talked about before, but I want to mention it again because it applies in this category. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. And we've talked about that in Psalm 23, that Yahweh says, I am the shepherd. So we, we, we saw that with Yahweh. We saw that in the I am statements of Jesus. But he is the good shepherd, and he's speaking of how he leads and cares for his church. So head is how, how he has authority and gives life to his church. Shepherd is how he cares for his church. Turn to John 10, 11 to 15. John 10, 11 to 15. We've looked at one of these verses a couple weeks ago, but I'm going to look at this section and read it. And look for what it means to be a good shepherd. What did Jesus do that made him a good shepherd? In John 10, 11 to 15. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep. He sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. I love that picture. It's like, ah, I'm out of here. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. But he's comparing that to to Jesus as the good shepherd. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I laid down my life for the sheep. I want a shepherd like that. I want a shepherd that cares for me enough that he will lay down his life because that's what Jesus did. Because he loved us, he came when we are dead in our sins and helplessly in slavery to our sins. And he gave his life to rescue us. But I, 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 would, I, I would highlight that in verse 13. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Because the contrast there is that Jesus is the shepherd, cares for you and cares for me. He loves us deeply. He is watching out for us. This isn't a one and done thing where I, I accept Christ, I have my salvation and maybe I'll see him again and then we can talk again. He's caring for you and I right now. He is the good shepherd even when your circumstances right now may make you wonder if there is a shepherd. But he is there and he is guiding and he is shepherding. Don't ever doubt that. I love verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. See, a shepherd, his sheep would know his voice. You could put a bunch of sheep and have several shepherds and the sheep would divide up to their shepherds based on their voice. They knew their shepherd's voice. And so this, he's talking about relationship here. A relationship where where Jesus and God, they are not far off as in every other religion. They are not distant and someone we hope we can have a future with. Jesus as good shepherd says, I am with you. 
I know your voice. You know my voice. That is, is just precious. The challenge for us is do we know his voice? Are we used to hearing it? See, the sheep wouldn't just know the voice the first time they heard it. The reason that was true is because they would hear the shepherd's voice over and over and over again, and they realized, I can trust him. It's why I love the stories of some of you that have been believers for a long time. And and maybe you've been believers for 40, 50 years, and you can speak to our body and say, I've followed God for 50 years and he has never let me down. That is a powerful testimony that he is a good shepherd. That you've heard his voice over and over and you're encouraging those that haven't been believers that long. And we have some new believers here and you can say, hear his voice because he is trustworthy. He is reliable. When we talked about shepherding, we talked about four different aspects. Shepherds provide food. They provide protection. They provide guidance and they provide care. Jesus is the good shepherd. A couple of other verses I just want to read because this is throughout the New Testament. We see some other verses that, that show this. In Hebrews 13, 20, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. So he's called the good shepherd, the great shepherd. In 1 Peter 2, 24, He Himself bore our sins in, the body on, in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. So this is the shepherd laying down His life for the sheep. Then the next verse, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we have the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. In 1 Peter 5, He's called the chief shepherd. Oh, what wonderful names for Jesus and His church. We are not alone. We are not left to fend for ourselves in a world that is caving in on every side against a culture that is so rapidly changing to secularism and following Satan that that my mind just spins sometimes when I hear the news. But none of that changes that Jesus is still the shepherd and still protecting and still caring and still guiding. Even if in 10 years we get to a place where it's illegal to meet together or it's illegal to proclaim that we're Christians anywhere outside of these walls, Jesus will still be our shepherd. And he will still care. And he will still guide. And all will not be lost. Because we know the truth. When we think of implications and applications, the first one I put there is we're dense sheep. We need to admit that we need His care. Admit our need for His care. Sheep don't always realize that. You know, I, I read some of the things before about sheep. They'll eat themselves into starvation. But we need to admit that we need Jesus. Eat what He provides, His Word. Trust His protection and stop worrying. Make His purposes our purpose. Enjoy His care. Enjoy Him third church name of Jesus we want to look at again a little briefer this morning because we've talked about husband but this is bridegroom bridegroom and when we talked about Yahweh we talked about how he is a husband to his people but bridegroom has a couple of different nuances so I wanted to still mention it turn to John 3:29 John 3 verse 29 
the setting here is John the Baptist is talking about Jesus, and he's starting to see some of his disciples move from him to Jesus, which was the goal all along, right? He's just pointing people to Jesus. And in John 3.29, this is the first place that we see Jesus called the bridegroom. We read, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And John the Baptist is tying into actually an Old Testament tradition where Israel is often used as the, uh, the name is used as they are the bride of, of God. And so here, bridegroom, they would have understood that this is God and his people. Praise God through Jesus that's expanded to Gentiles and to the whole world, to all who believe and all who follow. But this has rich meaning for the church as well. In Jewish weddings, Jewish weddings were an event. You know, our, we're, we have an event, right? But it's usually a one-day event. A Jewish wedding could have been a seven-day event or maybe a 14-day event. So, Shana, you're planning a wedding. You want to you plan seven days? <laughs> no, one day is enough. But it was an event of celebration. This was a huge, and there was different things you, you do every day. But this was a huge celebration. So when we think bridegroom, we should cue in on John's statement there. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. As we, as we look at bridegroom and, and, and that Jesus is a bridegroom, the church is his bride, whenever there is this reunion, the marriage feast, it's all about joy. I mean, imagine if you chose a best man, using John's um, imagery here, you chose a best man for your wedding and you knew that that best man the whole time would be going, I just cannot believe everyone's looking at the bride. I'm right here. And why is everyone so happy for them? They haven't even asked how I'm doing. No, would that be your best man? No, that, that would be Uncle Joe. Not Joe, sorry. Uh, Uncle, <laughs> Uncle so-and-so off in the corner. No, because you want someone that will stand with you and be happy with you and joyful with you. And that's what the, the best man would be. The friend of the, the, the groom here would actually make a lot of the wedding preparations for the bride and the groom. Now, that would be cool, right? Have, yeah, and make the preparations, and he would stand by the, the groom and make sure everything happens. He would escort the, dr- the groom where he needed to go. You can read more about that. But he would rejoice for the groom because it was about the bridegroom. In Matthew 9.15, you see this idea of rejoicing again. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast. And so Jesus here is saying, While I'm with you, and he will be with us again when we are the church is at the wedding feast with the Lamb. But while we're together, it's about rejoicing. And for us, it should be about rejoicing as we look forward. Five quick words that I want to give you. That when we think of marriage and the bridegroom and how this relates to the church. The first is relationship. Relationship. If you're married, your relationship with your spouse should be your closest relationship on this planet. Right? That's the imagery that Jesus uses of he and the church. That should be our closest relationship. Second word there is covenant. When, when we talk about that the wedding feast is coming, we're the church with Jesus is sort of in this betrothal engagement. We are wait, waiting for the wedding 
the marriage supper. And that betrothal is a covenant of faithfulness. Covenant to Christ. Leadership is the third word. When we think of bridegroom, the husband role was taken on by Christ and the husband was to be the head and the shepherd, the leader. The fourth word there is provision. The husband, when he was betrothed to a, to a wife, when he was married to a wife, he was saying, I take the responsibility to provide for this family and for her. That's a, that's a weighty thing. I talk with some of you young men as you're looking forward to marriage. And that's one of the things that comes up. I, I have to provide for her. Uh-huh. It's a good responsibility to grab hold of and embrace and understand. Jesus provides for his church. And the fourth one there is joy. And I think the main one here, joy and rejoicing. This was the overriding theme at Jewish weddings. It was all about the joy and the dancing and the enjoying of it all. Joshua read Revelation 19, 6 through 9 this morning in worship. But catch the joy that's there. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Let us rejoice. We should look forward to saying, Jesus is coming again. We're going to spend eternity with Him. Let's rejoice. Let's rejoice now that we are betrothed to the King of kings and the Lord of lords is His church. This should bring great joy. We need to keep moving. There are a couple of implications and applications. Be devoted to growing your love for Christ. Bridegroom and bride... We expect them to be nurturing their relationship, to be growing in their love for each other, not ignoring each other. Be devoted to growing that love. Second one there is be faithful to Jesus. A bridegroom expects his bride to be faithful. Read Hosea sometimes about God's expectations about his people and whether his bride should be faithful. And for us, that means do we have any idols in our life? Is there anything that is more important than Jesus to us? Is, he, is there anything that's making him not preeminent? And these all come back to preeminence. If there is, I've got to deal with it. I've got to get rid of it. Finally, rejoice in Jesus. Rejoice in Jesus. The last name that I want to give, and then we're going to sing a song that talks about it, is Cornerstone. Our foundation in 1 Peter 2.7. And in 1 Peter 2.7 we read, So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected, because the Jews, the Jewish leaders had rejected Jesus, the stones that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. In Acts 4.11-12, in the sermon there, Peter gives, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And and cornerstone, I I did a lot of reading on cornerstone because I haven't built a house very often. uh, And and really, we don't build out of stone. And so this idea of cornerstone is a bit foreign to us, although John was saying there's some aspects of building that correspond to it. And, and so there's two aspects of cornerstone that I'll, I'll give you in your notes and then I'll give you a couple of illustrations for this. The first is that the cornerstone was to be the foundation for stability of the building. 
It was the foundation for stability of the building. They realized as they built these stones homes and how they were constructing it, that there was always one corner that took most of the weight and that stone would wear more. So they would choose the, the biggest and strongest stone for that. When we were visiting Israel, some of the, the stones at the bottom of the Temple Mount, of the retaining walls there, some of those stones are two, three, four tons. Those are big stones. Those aren't going to move. They wanted those at the bottom for stability. And, and so really your cornerstone was the first stone that you would lay down. I have some illustrations. First stone that you would lay down because all weight would be on this. So you picked your best and your strongest one. Out of that then, you would build the next corner... And then this became what would support the building, the most important stone in the building. So that bottom one is the cornerstone. They're they're all part of the building, but that bottom one is the key for stability. Yesterday, we found out what happens when a, a bounce house is not anchored down, when there's not stability, right? Praise God, none of our kids were in it because it would have been an e-ticket ride as the wind took it into the air to the cars and to the street. And Mark Bessie, I think, got to have a little ride trying to hang on to the corner of it. It had no stability. It had no cornerstone. It had no foundation. We almost killed kid. No, we didn't. Uh, it's all padded, perfectly safe. But no problem. But you saw the need for a foundation, right? For stability. That is what Jesus gives to his church, is a foundation for stability. Is that huge today in a culture that is shifting faster than I can blink. Churches that are shifting because they want to bring in people. They don't want to offend. There are reasons why fewer and fewer churches are talking about hell and judgment of God because that might keep someone from coming back. The problem is is they're keeping people from going to heaven and they're keeping people from turning to Christ because they've lost the foundation, the cornerstone. The other aspect of a cornerstone is it squares the building. It gives the lines that all the walls are to follow. And I I probably did a a really poor job here, but for them that first stone was important because then they'd base the lines of the wall. And so the whole structure of the building, whether it was straight or not, was dependent on that. We need to remember that Jesus is the cornerstone. This is His church. We stand on Him as our foundation. You know, I, I put a ladder over here, and I'll end with this illustration. And, and if I t- ask for volunteers right now, and some of you are like, I will never volunteer for you. I've seen what you do. <laughs> How many of you would volunteer to climb up this ladder right now? You could do it, right? Okay? We're out of time, so I won't have someone come up and do it. But let's just say, I said, okay, you come up... Sorry about those sitting in the front. You come up and I say, okay, we need to go a little higher. Now will you climb it? <laughs> Don, you, you want to try, Don? I'd like you to go all the way to the top. <laughs> You're not helping. <laughs> Why are there less hands? It's not stable. It's not safe. The foundation has changed. This is not a foundation to base climbing that ladder on. 
And I end with this because our foundation as a church, our foundation as individuals has to be the work of Christ in our lives. It has to be who Jesus is, that He is truth. If we try to found our lives on anything else, if we have a different goal in life, if we have a different reason for doing anything that we're doing, it is like standing on that ladder on that table, which is just foolish. Probably be at the hospital a little bit later today. But how are we making Jesus our cornerstone? This means we need to trust the Bible as completely true, and that is under attack. More and more, even churches are saying it's just an ancient text that is nice and helpful. It is the true Word of God in every word, in every thought that is there. And we hold to that as a church. We need to ask, if we're going to make Jesus our cornerstone, we need to ask, how are we following His example? And I know there's good and bad things about the phrase, what would Jesus do? But when we think about what would Jesus have me do, that might be a better way of looking at it. What is His example? Don, if you want to put that last one up there. The question that I want to end with today is, how does Christ's work on the cross change how I think and act? And this comes full circle back to preeminence. How am I going to make him first? So when I go tomorrow and have a coworker that is accusing me of something I didn't do, how will the fact that I am saved by the blood of Christ and he is the good shepherd that died for my sins, how is that going to change my response? The level of my anger whether I still am able to show grace or whether I'm going to make it about me. How will this change my response when the kids are just all over me and I'm like, I just need a a break for a moment. And they're like, we just want you to love us, Dad. What's the example of Christ? What would He have me do? How will this change when I'm in an argument with my wife? Not that we ever disagree. When we're having a disagreement and I know I'm right and everything would be fine if she would just admit that. How does it change if I say, actually, my life is to be based on Christ and I'm not the head of everything. Jesus is and he said I'm to love her and give my life for her and maybe I'm wrong. Usually. And if we all come with that attitude, how does the gospel change our lives? How does making Jesus first change every decision, every act? If I see someone that's annoying me, how do I love them like Jesus loves them? Because annoying and and, and alienating them is not in the realm of what we should do scripturally. It's sin. So how am I going to let the gospel affect everything? How is Jesus going to be all? Lord God, you are all to us. Lord, help us to acknowledge You as head and be connected to the head. Help us to see Your care as shepherd. Help us to rejoice in the bridegroom and the marriage feast that is coming. Lord, and help us to make You the foundation of every decision, every thought, every action, that You will be all to us. Thank You for creating Your church. May we live like Your church and Your body. In Jesus' name, Amen.